This podcast is an unedited excerpt from an MCLE program presented at MCLE's Conference Center in Boston, Massachusetts. Get 24-7 instant access to over 425 real estate and environmental law e-lectures and more with a subscription to the MCLE Online Pass. Learn more um, at <clears throat> www.mcl.org. So, this presentation today is uh, about an hour long. I'm going to try to leave some time for questions at the end. So we'll probably finish a little bit before 1 o'clock. Um, and so you have the ability to put questions into the online chat system. And I might pause here and there and answer a few. Or I might just wait till the end, depending on how I'm doing on time. Uh, the program is Top 10 Mistakes Family Law Mediators Make. And um, I'm basically, uh, basically breaking this program into two parts. I'm going to talk about uh, some of the most common mediator mistakes. I'm also going to talk about some of the most common just family law practitioner mistakes in general um, that I think both uh, counsel and mediators make. Um, because as mediators, we're part of the, the family law, as family law mediators, as divorce mediators, we're, we're part of the same system that family law counsel are, um, and we sometimes make some of the same mistakes. Um, in, in order to, to jump into that, um, I'm going to talk first just about what is mediation. And for those of you that are mediators or have taken a mediation training, this should be a little bit repetitive, um, but it's really necessary context for talking about you know the mistakes that I'm going to say that we sometimes make. Um, really come out of forgetting uh, what our role is and as mediators. Um, and so we got to start with a basic, what is actually our role? Uh, and so there's a lot of different definitions of mediation out there. Uh, the Uniform Mediation Act defines mediation as a process in which a mediator facilitates communication and negotiation between parties to assist them in reaching a voluntary agreement regarding their dispute. Uh, one of the problems with that definition is it refers to a mediator, so always a little bit problematic when the definition refers to something, you know, with the same name within the definition. But there's some important parts of that definition um, that I really like. One is it talks about facilitation. Um, two, it talks about voluntariness. And three, it talks about reaching an agreement. Um, and in family law mediation, most of the work we're doing is in the divorce field. I also work with clients who are unmarried parents um, and sometimes in probate matters, but most of the work is divorce mediation. And the goal is to not just to work things out, but to work out an agreement that can be approved by the court. People want to actually get divorced. And to do that in Massachusetts, the, the court has to approve the agreement. So, it's not just reaching an agreement, it's reaching an agreement that fits within certain parameters. And I'm gonna talk about sort of what, what is the mediator's role in that part, um, especially in Massachusetts. Um, the Uniform Mediation Act defines a mediator as an individual who conducts a mediation. Now, there's a little bit more to that because the Uniform Mediation Act also defines some training requirements and things like that. But at a, at a base, again, the the definitions reflect each other. So I think we could do a little bit better than that. So you know, what are the components of a, a mediation? It's voluntary, uh, self-determined. Um, and when I say self-determined, I mean the parties are not only responsible for coming out with the outcome, 
they have a mediator to help them get there, but ultimately decisions only get made if they agree. But they also have some control over the process. And this is something that varies a lot by mediator. Um, some mediators feel that they want to control the process a lot more, and some are much more flexible or passive. Uh, but this is a voluntary process. So if the clients don't like the way that one mediator runs their process, they can go to another mediator. So there is a self-determination, even if you run a fairly rigid process, the clients don't have to stay. So I think it's important to recognize clients also have control over the process choice and the way in which the process runs. And that's something unique to out-of-court dispute resolution because in the court process, the clients don't have those choices. Um, they have choices about how they work within the system, but they can't change the court rules. Um, mediation is also uh, confidential. And in Massachusetts, there's a statute that provides us with that confidentiality. We, actually, we have not enacted the Uniform Mediation Act in Massachusetts. We do have a confidentiality statute. And that statute requires that the mediators have taken a 30-hour training, that the clients and the mediator sign a written agreement, and that the mediator either have a certain number of years of experience or be a member of an organization that uh, has mentorship and apprenticeship opportunities. Um, so if those three things are true, then the mediator has confidentiality in Massachusetts. And that's an important part for the clients signing up for a mediation. There was an interesting survey done at one of the conferences I went to um, of an, a national mediator conference um, where one of the presenters had done a, a wide survey nationwide of um, a lot of different uh, areas and income levels and all sorts of different people who had gone through mediation and asked them a number of questions about mediation. And one of the questions was just, why did you choose mediation? What motivated you? And they could weigh different things. And I think as mediators, as practitioners, we often expect that one of the things that's going to weigh really high is cost that people might choose mediation as a way of saving money over a potential litigation process. But actually one of the things that weighed the highest for clients was privacy. And so that's the flip side. When we talk about from a, a legal perspective, it's confidential, we mean something specific by that. Um, I can't as a mediator, if I've checked those three boxes in the statute, I can't be subpoenaed. Um, but clients are not thinking about it from the perspective of, subpoenas in court, they're thinking about, is this private? Is my information, is what I say going to stay here? Um, and that is different than the public court process, especially like motion hearings and things like that. Um, but also just the fact that all the paperwork that they prepare in the mediation up until what they need to provide to the court is not in a public court record. So for clients, that privacy can mean a lot. Uh, and so confidentiality is a really important piece of mediation. And in Massachusetts, it's important to make sure that mediators check those three boxes. Uh, and then uh, mediation should be by informed consent. In fact, I think any process that parties are entering into should be by informed consent. But in the court process, they don't necessarily have a choice. In mediation and collaborative law, we often talk about making sure the clients fully understand what it makes for the mediation to work before they get into it. Um, and what they have control over and the fact that it's voluntary and all those things. So to me, these are core components of mediation, some of which were in that definition, definition and some of which were maybe just implied. Um, but next, you know, who is the mediator? Well, the mediator should be neutral. 
impartial. They shouldn't have any conflicts between the parties. I can't mediate for someone. I also am going to represent one side or do business with one side. And while that may seem kind of obvious, there are less obvious partialities and biases. And we all have to decide where we draw those lines about what types of cases as a mediator I'm comfortable taking and what types of cases maybe um, I'm not going to be able to be impartial on. Uh, impartiality is also not just something that I have to decide whether I can be. It's also a matter of whether the clients see me as impartial. So a perceived conflict or a perceived bias is something that I have to address in a mediation as well. Um, if the clients don't think I'm impartial, then the mediation is not going to work. They're not going to participate um, in a way that feels safe. Um, and the mediator has to be trained. Um, that's sort of obvious that we want professionals to have training. Um, it's also important to note in Massachusetts, we have this 30-hour training requirement in order to have confidentiality. Uh, and that's a basic training requirement. We obviously encourage mediators to get additional training, things like this program, um, additional opportunities to do role play. Um, you know, like anything, mediation as a profession requires an ongoing, continuing training. Um, so it's not just a one-time thing. And in particular, when I talk about some of the mistakes that mediators make, I'll point out areas in which tr additional training can help prevent um, or make those, um, or make 